Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's a goal. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? Hello, so it's episode five of our lockdown series, and also episode five of the Sunderland Side I Watch Along. This is an FPL-free zone, so if you're new here, please stop listening to this and go back to episode one of this series, starting off at 18 minutes, 30 seconds to get up to speed. Might take you a while to get back here, but hopefully you'll enjoy it. It's been really good fun to do this. For those who are with us, What's up? I'm joined today by Nick and Stag, of course. Uh, start with Nick, as usual. You all right? Yeah, mate. Um, I'm pretty good, thank you. Um, just as I said last week, it's another week in lockdown, you know. Um, same old, same old, working from home, no football, just uh, trying, trying to get through life and everything. Yeah, yeah on that positivity, um, we are Who Got The Assist. Um, you can find us on Twitter, at WGTA underscore uh, for Tom at WGTN it's got Nick for me at FPL Stag for Anthony and we're also on Instagram so make sure to give us a follow there it's WGTA.FPL so Anthony what's on the pod this week Evening lads good to be back uh, another work from home week for me as well in Belgium uh, I've been enjoying Ozark though that's been definitely the highlight of the last week along with a few other random documentaries uh, this week on the pod we're going to be looking at the news as per uh, which has we've got a few developments with Project Restart as it has become definitely known at this point which is the return of Premier League football in general and also we will be moving on then to the Check a Trade final episode really of the Sunderland Till I Die series which is a, a good watch, but certainly a much more football-heavy one than anything else in the series. Yeah, it is strange to see so much football action, isn't it? I mean, I think the last couple of episodes have been really about office politics and office drama, so it's getting back to the pitch, um, especially with the, the lack of football, the scarcity of it at the moment, it was really quite refreshing. Action and thousands of people in close proximity touching. It's almost voyeuristic, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. It has, different has changed TV, hasn't it? You just, you just can't watch it without thinking, Christ, there's, there's no social distancing going on here until everyone's shaking hands. It's, it's disturbing to, to watch. I was actually I was watching a Soviet era movie the other night, and uh, like it was oh goodness, was it Moscow doesn't care for tears? Is that what it was called? And actually, people were slightly socially distancing in that the whole way through, and it was almost like wow, this this represents our time. <laughs> I, I, I saw this film on Netflix called Contagion, which also was really similar. <laughs> Hang on, wait a minute, wait a minute. Right, uh, on that note, let's move to the news. And uh, yeah, quite a lot going on. Uh, we were just speaking of Cameron Anthony and the same sort of uh, article structures keep coming in day, day after day after day, don't they? But as you're saying, one line seems to change, which kind of updates you on the day's events, because obviously not much is happening right now. And we're definitely in that Project Restart, aren't we? 
Yeah, so your your standard article is, you know, fans sad, football not back. Uh, all depends on Johnson, but owner has said X or player has said Y or Kyle Walker hasn't done X. And <laughs> or has done X and Y. <laughs> <laughs> and possibly somebody else's Z. And that's part of the issue with him. But... Um, Look, we, we are seeing stuff happening, I guess. And I guess it started off with this whole entire June 8th Ferrari, which was being mooted as a return to football date uh, and had been there for a while until Gary Neville just decided to put it out there as if it was new news fishing for an opinion. But he, he actually caught a fish this time in Steve Parrish, the CEO of Crystal Palace. That was particularly interesting. And basically the thing was that Gary Neville was calling out the clubs, the CEOs, the structures for for anybody for not coming forward with any sort of suggestions, clarity, transparency, proposals that everything was happening behind closed doors. And Steve Parrish effectively came forward uh, with everything, with an article that was uh, simultaneously published in the Sunday Times and on Crystal Palace's website, where he was trying to talk about why the Premier League should return and all of the concerns that they're there and how the Premier League hoped to answer them. Obviously, he couldn't go into minute detail on any of that, but I think it was a much more positive and generally promising uh, tone being set with that. Yeah, I think so. So I think Steve, I think he came across quite well, actually, in terms of the article he wrote and what he wrote on the Palace website. And also, you know, being brave enough to, to respond to Gary Neville. Gary sort of accused Premier League clubs of hiding. And, you know, there's no one communicating. No one wants to, to say what why they agree. And, you know, he's also raising the fact that, you know, this, this could cause people to die, essentially, if we bring back the football too early because it's, it's, it's not safe. And, uh I think, um, yeah, what, what Parrish put on his website was, is, is very, you know, he put a very well-rounded argument. He said, obviously, money is a factor, but it's not the only factor here. And, uh, you know, we need, to, we need to get on with things, essentially, and, uh, and move on. You know, it's not going to be perfect with neutral venues, potentially, and empty stadiums. But, you know, for the, for the good of the game, the football has to, we have to come up with a solution as to how we're going to bring it back and how we're going to finish the season. I think it's the it's the standard sort of reaction to lots of things at the moment, which is without getting too political, um, how, how dare you question what's going on because you know the government are trying all, all, as hard as they can, or you know you've got to be thinking about the key workers whenever you make any point outside of anything. Like I posted about my, my gaming the other day, and someone quote retweeted that tweet and said, "Oh yeah, these millennials, like you know, they're just getting everything given to them while key workers are out. They haven't got the time to be sitting around gaming." You know, some sort of angry guy and I was just oh it's Dotson but anyway like I, I think that that's kind of what this all kind of wrapped up in like that sort of angry sort of emotive reaction but really like reading Steve Parrish what he's written there like uh, at the risk of sounding like we're defending the hierarchy defending the establishment I think that there's definitely some um, you know cold certainty in that some sort of uh, some clinical clinical detail in it which I think definitely is true and um, the line that particularly resonated with me was that when he said football was just another industry trying to get back to work and um, that completely makes sense to me because yes okay all of the usual stuff about key workers about the terrible situation etc 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 but plans still need to be made things still need to be done preparations need to be put into place it's not the case of someone saying right we're going to get it all sorted out right now the groundwork does need to be laid for to get things back to some semblance of normality so, yeah just put a bit more meat on the bones that what parish is trying to say is that he look he wants to 
the Premier League and football in general to be almost what Formula One is to engineering and for general road vehicles that they, you know, they might set the safety standards or the standards in terms of design, etc. And that the Premier League football with its physical science, its medical infrastructures, the resources, that it, they will basically act as the template for the new normal for working environments. Parrish just touches on the, the mental benefits as well. I think all of us can kind of tell that having something else to watch alone would be great, not to mind having it being something that we really enjoy in football. And actually, that's something that the Spanish government have recognised. Parish doesn't go into it, but pro sports uh, athletes are amongst the very first workers to have been left back to work now for that reason in Spain because getting the La Liga back and other professional sports back will give people a lift and that's been seen as like a worthwhile risk. Parish is also talking about how safety is incredibly important and they need to get it down to like almost a zero chance of you know, of positive players being on the pitch. But also the idea that the Premier League won't be leeching off society for this, that the Premier League are going to pay for their own tests, they're going to fund it all themselves and they're not going to have ambulances there that are taking away from the NHS in general, which is good. And, and, but the idea is basically just that the Premier League football will needs to be one of the safest places in society to coexist, which will be much safer than a journey to the supermarket these days. And that's what they're aiming for. Yeah, exactly. And, and one other thing that perhaps people aren't probably aware of is um, he raises the fact that football is actually one of the most efficient tax generating industries in Britain. And, um, you know, whilst the players might get a lot of money, 50% goes straight back into the public's purse because it's, it's all tax. So, you know, it will actually give the wider economy a boost. It's, it's not quite like Amazon sort of channeling all their funds offshore and not, not paying a dime of actual tax in this country this, this is all, all these players are properly taxed and it all helps and will benefit the and the country if um, we bring back this industry that we all love certainly i mean there's that tangible and there's also the intangible which is that it will raise the spirits i know that sounds really wishy-washy but i think there's definitely a, an impact there that we'll have to seeing live sports again wherever it's hosted however it is done fans or no fans i think it will definitely as as we get closer and closer to a resumption of the season, I think kind of our misgivings about there being no fans will give way because excitement will build again, despite the fact that the circumstances aren't quite the same as pre-coronavirus times. As Steve Parrish puts it, the more we can work out now, the better chance we have coming out of this with the game we all love in a position to recover over time. Um, and I think that that's sensible. And I think it's soberly argued and Fair enough. It's definitely worth checking out if you can have a look at it just to read it for yourself. Um, it's on the Crystal Palace website. Uh, if you don't want to go through the Times paywall, which I don't recommend you do. On the other side of the uh, of the debate, though, you do have a few other characters, don't we? We've got Karen Brady, who famously a little while ago said that you know the season just be aborted, and uh, Dan Barber at Brighton uh, opposes uh, neutral venues being used, um, which is interesting given the Fox Sport article that you found, Anthony, suggesting Perth in Australia as a venue for uh, the Premier League. <laughs> What better spot for Premier League football to be played? It's, it's, it, was a, it was a funny article, really, just like from Fox Australia, but I'm not sure if you could really put any mass in it whatsoever. I think it, it, the neutral venues idea is definitely something that's being pushed, and I think that's likely something that we will see. And, and like, okay, that sounds ridiculous on first viewing if you don't think about it for a second. But the idea is for health and safety, obviously, that they have like a certain number of venues that are approved, sealed off, looked after, etc. But the idea is also that teams will not play in their home cities. So Liverpool will not play at Anfield. Likewise, they will not play at Goodison Park. They'll end up playing in, I don't know, Birmingham or Man Manchester would be probably too close even. They might end up playing even in London, for example. And it's what they're trying to do is to stop 
just fans rushing to the grounds just because um, because that would be a nuisance. If you just remember the behind closed doors game that PSG played against Dortmund in the Champions League in the the last week before football became a uh, <laughs> a fiction of the old world and basically that all these fans came out were outside the stadium the players went out afterwards the bus drove through flares gatherings etc it was probably another super spreader moment and they're trying to avoid that happening now the bottom six teams in the league it's not just brighton but the bottom six teams are apparently all against the idea of neutral venues because they will lose home advantage like the question is what is home advantage if the stadium isn't full of fans anyway it's a kind of a difficult one to even understand yeah I mean to be honest I can kind of sympathize again with Dan Barber's views I mean looking at sort of Brighton's fixtures they have only two points currently from safety and they've got home matches against Arsenal Manchester United Liverpool and Manchester City still to come they've got a really tough fixture run and some really tough home fixtures and you can imagine a neutral venue they just won't have that crowd there you know they won't have you know, the Amex won't be the fortress that they like to try and make it. They'll, they'll, they'll struggle for possession. And, and, you know, they might feel hard done by. And you can, you can, if the crowds were there, you could think Arsenal, you know, potentially a cheeky win, potentially a 1-0. Even United might get a draw, probably lose against Liverpool and City. But, you know, if on a neutral venue, you don't fancy them to hardly get any points there at all. But were they going to create a 40,000-person Webex and pipe the noise? It's, it's not going to happen. I know it's not going to happen. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, how is it ever going to happen? Regardless, regardless of the scenario, it, it was never going to be like, they were never going to have 40,000 people probably in the crowd. But, you know, I, I, again, that's just as I said, it's, and everyone, not everyone's going to be winning out of this scenario. There's going to be someone who ends up being felt like they've been hard done by and some of these clubs that want to avoid the league or whatever like West Ham who are also in, in danger you know even likes of Bournemouth and, and Watford as well have sort of come out and suggested that they don't want the season to continue and you, you look at their league position and you, and you really have to wonder why it's uh, obvious isn't it oh yeah well I think that like basically once you take out all the fans and take out all that sort of massive psychology you're hinting at Nick what you end up with is that teams with the better players are more likely to do well and that correlates with teams who have more money because they can afford to have better players and maybe you have some sort of you know, fascinating tactics you know, the likes of Nuno playing Catanacho football and winning 3-0 on, on the counter something like that but I think I don't know I, I get the feeling if it's in neutral venues it will be all the more predictable because you'll end up with the better teams beating others it, where, where it will become intriguing is if there is you know an outbreak <laughs> or if there is an injury to a serious, to a player or if there's a lot of rotation due to lack of match fitness I think that will be where the interest where the intrigue lies like removing home advantage just makes it into a tournament doesn't it it brings that sort of ethos one final thing as well is that Marvin Sordell who's now on the advisory board to the FA I think said that footballers should be able to opt out of playing if they've got, you know, live with their parents or have children with underlying conditions or indeed have underlying conditions themselves. Those kids, those of footballers have asthma. Um, that could also put a bit of a spin on things if that is brought in. Obviously, it's just his opinion, but he is uh, joining the FA. I think that'll be a, a challenge for, for clubs to accept, if, especially if they're on uh, sort of £30,000 a week. If they're kind of putting their foot down and saying, I refuse to play, I refuse that you can see some very terse um, contracts discussions and fines potentially off the back of that. So yeah, I do. I, it's, it's it's a challenging position for some of these players to be in because a lot of them probably do not want to go back and, and don't think it's safe. And I know a lot of people, you know, who don't want to go back to their jobs or whatever as well. So you can see the same with footballers as well. 
All right, let's take a break there and we'll get into Sun Till I Die, season two, episode five. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? So we're back and it's time to talk about season two, episode five of Sun Until I Die, the time for men. So 43 minutes this one, heavy on action and low on office drama, as I mentioned earlier on. In many ways, the antidote, in fact, to last week's very uh, office heavy instalment. And we start off this one with a Brexit march. Um, our taxi driver mate, Pete Farrer, uh, tells us how it's a working class city. I'm not getting into this. You can probably guess what our views are on Brexit. But more important, he says, is them getting promoted. The uncertainty is the killer. That's the line we hang on as we go into the opening credits. On the river after those, the scene opens in Oxfordshire, or in Stuart's mansion. He's talking to one of his lackeys, I'm not sure whether it's Richard or Neil. Who knows? Who really cares? They're just a cipher for him to talk to at this point. Uh, but they lay bare um, how expensive it is, uh, given the legacy of the piss-taking party at the club. We need £10 million more every year to have a go. I think we need a budget of 20 spent well. Yeah. It's just not sustainable, not in the championship. They also mentioned that somebody, I'm going to assume is McGeady, is on 50k per week. <laughs> but basically the whole thing here opens the door to extra investment. And the difficulty is obviously the balance between what the investor will give versus what they'll get for that investment. But basically it looks like it's a done deal. Um, Stuart isn't really a sugar daddy, as mentioned on the last pod. And he can't finance this, uh, this long term. And he puts the predicament they're in in stark terms. We get an investor. Yeah. Or we have to sell. So that leads to the question, was Stuart naive to buy Sunderland, given his limited means? Well, I think ultimately when we saw in the last episode, he broke the bank to bring in Will Grigg. He did show um, a, a degree of naivety then. And, you know, in that respect and looking at now the situation he's found himself in where he essentially can't finish this project that he, he gave himself and he's only been there for about seven to eight months or something if, if that at this point then it does seem a little bit naive to to have taken this gamble but ultimately you can you can tell the type of character he is he he he, he likes to spend his money he likes to have as much fun as possible and i and i can see like if this was his decision to buy son and he wanted to do this it's not necessarily all about the making money but it's also about you know his his love of football and what he wanted to do with his life and this was a potentially a once in a lifetime opportunity for him as well so you know he may he may be naive but you know he, he's he is a businessman and he's getting some pleasure out of it i think as well if you're to give him the benefit of the doubt on this you would think that he thought that he was probably going to be able to make sunderland more self-sufficient faster than he did that he wouldn't necessarily need to inject as much of his own wealth in whilst they were balancing the books over the course of a few years but even if that was the case it would be almost naive not to understand the kind of the long-term nature of contracts sometimes and you know you can't just yeah. get rid of all mm. of your uh, expenditure and you know on a long-term sense in one go but as a businessman and someone who's been as successful as he has been to build up you know a fortune that we reckon i guess through googling etc was probably in the high single digit millions uh, you'd, yeah. you'd like to hope that he'd, he'd done a ton of due diligence before buying Sunderland. and, and you see the way that charlie sure. charlie and stewart act like they arrived they looked at the books they were shocked they were disgusted they were alarmed it is the biggest mess of a business that that, that i've ever seen 
but surely if you're going to buy something, you'd have done all this analysis before you bought the club in the first place. You'd be aware. Of but the, even that, though, you know, it's, I think all of us, all of us would have been aware of, you know, broadly the like it was, you know, seven-figure losses that Sunderland were making at least year in year out. You know, you wouldn't have needed, or even eight-figure, sorry, losses that Sunderland were making year in year out, and that wouldn't have taken any any sort of accounting degree to work out. So from that point of view, you would have thought it was naive. But then there is that side of it, Nick, of like you have this unbelievable opportunity to buy a massive club the stadium the fans the opportunity and maybe you just back yourself that he did expect to go into this initially with a consortium that didn't happen as it played out initially he ended up buying the club just himself and maybe he always planned to get these other people in and maybe this whole entire conversation is just fabricated so that we understand what's going further and it was just a question from the cameraman that just made it happen for us just to bring the story along yeah, I definitely see what you mean. I think the term backing himself is definitely quite appropriate given what we saw with Will Grigg as well. But it get probably against rational advice with Sunderland and he went in anyway and you know, he had the safety net of this consortium that he then uh, went in without anyway sort of thing. I think it's definitely true. And he did, it does seem to have this sort of... He did mention the set of principles, didn't he, back in uh, episode two? And it feels like he's staked his pride a little bit on the club. The old-fashioned way. So getting involved in Sunderland gave me a chance to run a football club in what I perceive was an old-fashioned way. Exactly. Um, I think really what's interesting is how he's learned on the job what it's like almost because he had this really idealised view, this really innocent view of how things were. But now he's, it really looks like he's been sucked into this world, which is full of the things he initially railed against, you know, the agents, the blaming the manager, the, uh, you know, the, the, the rolling news culture. And as we saw over the last episode, he really has become an accomplice to all which he espoused not like. Um, and I think it really illustrates the difference in innocence and experience and first-hand like experience of things can really change your behaviors um you know it's easy to remotely analyze what you want to be as a chairman but i think we've seen him in the doing um completely contradicting what he was saying uh, i think that's really interesting as a, as a as a way to look at Stuart. question for you on that tom so okay we were talking about whether he's backed himself but do you think that he's just backed himself into a gamble in terms of just you know i i can throw money at this better than anybody else doing the same thing but do you think that there's a sort of fear of doing something different and trying to back himself by let's say taking the club in a direction that didn't have to rely on the agents that didn't have to just blame the manager where he you know invested in a culture, invested in a, an analytical approach, invested in an idea. Like, is the fact that he has ended up just, as you say, becoming part of the system that he was so against, belying the fact that he didn't actually back himself enough to do something unique or something different, or was it just a lack of creativity that sent him that way? I suspect it's a case of I have principles, but if you don't like them, I've got others. And I think in this particular instance, as we saw with Will Grigg last time, like, the principles that he perhaps would have espoused would have been to go along with what his lackey said, which was right. Let's pull out. This isn't worth the money. There's this isn't. There's no basis for you to be doing this. Um, but when push came to shove, I guess it was like he took the blue pill and just was just like, right, okay, I'm going to go for it. Um, I'm going to buy this player. But I think it is about kind of building a modern personification of what he thinks a club should be. Um, and I think it does come back to what I was saying about that difference between saying and doing. I guess what's just so frustrating is that 
okay, if he came into this with principles and wanted to do things the old-fashioned way, he needed to be able to do something that was different to how modern football is, especially at the lower levels when you come in as a millionaire, you're just expected to shot out the money and just buy your way up the pyramid. And like, Why he didn't do, let's say what, uh, for the second time, I think, in the series, we've mentioned Matthew Benham, who owns FC Midtland in Denmark and Brentford, I think amongst other clubs. And they have a particularly big emphasis on the use of data, the use of uh, emotional studies of players to try and fit the squad and to grow a culture and th- there's a whole entire different approach to football that they've used it's had great success in Denmark much more limited success in England thus far but I guess Brentford are moving to a new stadium and so you can kind of see that there was maybe success off the pitch that make them a more sustainable model if they do eventually get promoted from the Premier League uh, I'm just a bit frustrated when you watch someone like Stuart who had the chance to do that he bought this club 100% and, and, and didn't he just fell into the system yeah no I, I know what you mean I, I really wish that he had taken that advice and had tried to pioneer a new way of doing things. I just think he he's rubbed up against the fact that the system is <laughs> maybe at a point where it's very, very difficult to control. As we debated in episode two, um, that it's just the case where you can idealise how you'd like to change things, but some things are just so entrenched now that it's very, very difficult for uh, any um, new owner to come in and try to do things differently. Like if they said, oh yeah, I'm not dealing with agents, I'm not going to do that, then I suspect that practically they wouldn't be able to do anything, would they? So... Like he wouldn't be able to reform the whole system as it were, but it it does seem like he's completely capitulated. What he'd do otherwise, though, is is a question worth asking. Like, what else would you do? Um, it it seems like he did. He's kind of gone into it with this these sort of like lofty ideals of what he'd like football to be, but what he's found is that if you can't beat them, join them. Basically, so we cut from this scene to focus ourselves on the check a trade trophy. This uh, prestigious uh, bit of silverware is now known as the Leasing.com Trophy and is actually the EFL Trophy, uh, which is for clubs from League One and Two and also the Under-21s of some of the bigger clubs uh, to take part in. This looks an exciting distraction from the league for Sunderland and uh, our army man, uh, who's now introduced as Andrew Camis, uh, says why. So in theory, we're two games away from the national final in the Czech Trophy, so it's brilliant. And this is the first of many match days we'll see in this episode. Nick Barnes, who's got shades of Nick Harris about him, actually, says it's a realistic uh, chance for low division teams to get into finals. Uh, Sunderland win a skirmish of Newcastle 21s uh, 4-0. And after this, we cut to a few fans, Ian and Michelle. It's how important the fans are. They talk about the misery the fans have been through. And Nick Barnes says, you know, the 1973 story, Ian Porterfield scoring the winning goal from the World Cup is the law of Sunderland. Um, but change needs to happen. The club needs to reinvent itself. And part of Stuart Donald and Charlie Methven coming in and the season they're having in League One is part of that reinvention. There's a parallel here between uh, Mrs Doyle and Sunderland fans, isn't there, Stag? Uh, what do they have in common, do you think? An ingrained love of serving tea? Is that what you're getting at? <laughs> <laughs> they both love the misery. <laughs> oh, they would both store a big tool for you? <laughs> There's no way to talk about Charlie Methvin. Um, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but I, I just think that there's definitely an element of masochism, isn't there? I think it's admirable, isn't it, what, what they go through in these, uh, in these times, uh, having gone so long without any sort of uh, payoff. It's, it's true fandom, isn't it, to, to do that? Um, compla- complain as Arsenal fans or, or a bit more gravitas Spurs fans not winning anything. But, you know, compare that to Sunderland, it's, it's, it's very, very different, isn't it? 
So, yeah, from there, we cut to Charlie waxing lyrical about how pretty the Northeast is. He says London's very different from Sunderland, to put it mildly. But he says uh, how Sunderland uh, making the EFL trophy final could be transformation for the club. Say, you know, we're back uh, to this point. We're at my nan's team, Bristol Rovers. And the voiceover is Sunderland legend Mike Mickey Gray uh, saying how a promotion and trophy in the same season would be special. But if you could pick a trophy in the same season as well as getting promoted, I mean, that would be special basically foreshadowing schadenfreude there and we see this battle scene again stags man mcgeevy has a stormer great cold attempt he's too good for this league man and eventually will grigg of all people opens the scoring someone else scores a rebound it's 2-0 sunderland they're going to Wembley to play portsmouth charlie says whatever happens in the final he's looking forward to the experience yeah right and yeah we, we cut to the black cat house and you know, it seems like things are going mental lorna thompson's making the tea and she says that they've had thirty thousand ticket res- registrations for wembley already there's a huge queue and uh, in one depressing statement one lady says this not missing wembley are we that's probably a, a once a chance in a lifetime for my 12 year old so I, I guess what that statement gets at, though, is the value for, I guess, especially for fans of smaller teams of going to Wembley. Maybe for Premier League fans, having had Spurs play at home there for the last few years has maybe ruined the novelty of it a little bit. Or if you watch England consistently, maybe it's not quite as novel either. But these these cup final grounds that, you know, they're when you go there, you're there for a big game and a big game only, by and large. There's something kind of special to them, isn't it? Maybe you guys may have a better idea of that being from England than I would of the, the specialness that Wembley may hold in a football fan's conscience and why those Sunderlands are fans are they make sense when they say these sort of things well I think you can certainly see the, the excitement from the Sunderland fans when they head to Wembley later on in the episode and just the atmosphere you know the cup final day the chance of silverware you know this is what these, these fans dream of it's almost like a once in a lifetime occasion for them so it is so important for the club even if it's um, you know a trophy like the Checker Trade trophy quite a new trophy only for League One and below or you know, some under 21 teams so yeah, I think certainly there's, there's a massive, it is a massive, massive thing and a massive boon for the club to, to get to Wembley and allow all the fans to travel down, enjoy the excitement of the day. I think um, from personal experience, I, I've been to see um, Spurs play there before in the Champions League and, um, and you know, that, that was such an occasion, so exciting just to be there and with all the fans again. And then you've seen England play there a couple of times um, as well. And it is, yes, it's an amazing stadium. It's an amazing place to be. Um, you know, being from around that part, it, it's kind of, I don't know if it has the same appeal as it would for me as some of these other fans, you know, because it's, it's more kind of accessible, I guess, for myself. And I, when I went, I wasn't going for final days either. You know, these were just you know, normal matches for England or friendlies. So, um, yeah, uh, but it is, it's such an amazing place to go to. And uh, I think, yeah, for the fans, for this club, you know, this this is a huge occasion. Mm. I think it's got some uh, a mythical pay-end status about it. Um, it's, it's iconic, isn't it, going to Wembley? It used to be going to the Twin Towers and it's now going underneath the big arch. Um I can understand. I think I think it's more kind of the occasion, the day, the big day out, which is really part and parcel of it. Like I don't think Wembley and Wembley in of itself is is a name. There's a huge recognition of that and what it entails, you know, all the, all the history and tradition behind it. But there's also kind of 
having that day out in Wembley, especially if it's a proper thing to do, a proper place to go, um, all the camaraderie, all the tomfoolery, uh, which may take part in that, all the drinking, uh, which may which may be a part of that as well, as perhaps something which constitutes uh, why people enjoy it so much, uh, especially if you're not from here. As the same as Nick, I'm, it's not very far from me, relatively speaking, to get to Wembley, so maybe I've never really uh, appreciated it. It also probably gets at the value of cups in general to fans of Premier League clubs. I guess, look, you're an Arsenal and Spurs fans. You could both expect to be in cup finals relatively consistency, consistently, oh, yeah. whether it works out like that. But for, for Sunderland, like last trophy is the 70s you're talking about. For a team even like, let's say, Portsmouth, who obviously won the FA Cup in very, very recent times and have been to Wembley a few times since with promotion playoffs and all this sort of thing. But at the same time, it's still a big day for those sort of fans too and so maybe that feeds into it yeah i think just using that use giving teams that platform is especially useful as we'll find out in in basically the next section and um, that also gives them a bit of a financial incentive to get on because you've got the match day kind of uh, gen- revenue generation as well as the kind of the occasion and the prestige of saying yeah i made it to wembley what i don't like as a side point is semi-finals being hosted at wembley I think that that's really silly and um, that it should be at Villa Park or something like that like it used to be. It shouldn't be done at Wembley. I think that's just them trying to maximise the income from a, a, a huge spend on the stadium. But there we go. That's by the by. I'm not going to go into that. Right. So without further ado, we cut to the room. So in this room, uh, Charlie says it's worth £1 million a go. And it's important to get all our ducks in a row. <laughs> oh dear. What a statement that is. Um, and there's a really kind of awkward exchange where Chris Waters, uh, the senior liaison officer, pipes up with a, with a suggestion to allow non-season ticket holders to who had been to the EFL trophies a chance to purchase tickets which is shot down brutally by Charlie like this love the idea but sorry I just want to get back onto my idea because I want to make more money yeah, of course. <laughs> um, if, if, we, if you get an extra 3,000 people spending 20 quid yeah. because they want to make sure of their cup final yes. ticket then we make, we make 60,000 quid you see him going through the commercial reasoning. Some people, some in the room are like, oh, God, what are you doing? And you see Charlie outside uh, kind of underlining how important this day is. For a one-off injection of £1 million, pounds, that, that's really meaningful. I mean, it, it pays for half of Will Grigg. I mean, this is kind of classic Charlie, isn't it? He's steamrolling the conversation again. Um, but I guess, is, is there anything inherently bad about what he says in shooting down the SLA? Like, he's really made to look like a, a bit greedy here. But I think it's just about maximising opportunity, isn't it? I think, you know, it's, it's quite funny because um, he, he wasn't bothered about the fact that the camera was there. You know, he was he was proud of the fact that it's all about making money. The SLO suggested some sort of, you know, reward scheme for people who had been to the, the other matches previously. And that was just, you know, Charlie was like, yeah, but it's a great idea. However, I'm not, in, you know, I want to go back to my idea. And yeah, he is steamrolling the conversation. It's all about his decisions. But again, he's, he's thinking about it from a purely financial perspective, how they can make as much money as possible. Yeah, again, and it, you know, um, it does it, it does put that Will Grigg purchase into perspective again when Charlie's just been so focused about, you know, the marginal gains and any sort of marginal gain they can make in any form of sense. And then they spent three million and broke smashed the record in, in January for a, for a player that's barely scored all season. It does um, it does come across slightly laughable, doesn't it? 
I actually wondered to myself whether this was Charlie Methven's way, with the Will Grigg comment especially, of venting his frustration at the fact that, you know, he's, he's micromanaging the money and trying to get across a certain point. And then, as we touched upon last week, that, you know, it, Stuart Donald effectively took the Floridian billionaire approach to things and just threw a load of money at Will Grigg against all logical advice. And I did wonder to myself when he said that about Will Grigg, you know, it's oh, a half of Will Grigg, one million pounds for this game. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, how he shot down the SLO at the end of the day, I think that's just consistent. They're just trying to make money out of things. And I guess what the SLO was saying um, was a nice idea if you were Manchester City, who are yeah. you know forever trying to fill the empty hat. But that's not the idea when it comes to Sunderland. They do need to make the 60K, and it's an easy 60K to make. Oh, yeah. No, I think it was just... I think it was shot in a way to make it look like Charlie was a bit of a dick for being like, oh, no, don't do that. You know, we've got to make loads of money. Um, but to me, it just makes sound business sense, right? Like, I think you've got to wake up if you go to, if you watch that and think, oh, it's really bad how businesses exploit people. Like, everybody's being exploited all the time by businesses uh, capitalizing on particular situations. But it's not like they were asking for £1,000 from every wheelchair user that wanted a ticket to go to Wembley. Like, it was 3,000 people paying an extra 20 quid to go to Wembley. That's whatever it was. They probably all spent that yeah. on three pints or two pints in London, probably. Two pints, yeah, two pints if you're lucky. Uh, but yeah, I think it's like uh, securing your ticket, isn't it? And as he, as he says, they've got to be appear to be fair, but they're looking to maximise their income from the event. That's capitalism, folks. Um, but it is interesting that he, as you've both mentioned, directly do- connects the club revenue with the player spend. Like the piss take party, really does seem to fall entirely on the back office, uh, you know, to deal with and like Grig in some ways is an employee on the same level as, you know, Lorna and the ticket office, but that's not really true, is it? Like, and it seems unfair on, to me at least that the, the kind of the, the office side of it is carrying the can for this kind of Floridaized approach, as you put it. Like, and I guess it kind of links to the furloughing situation we see now where non-playing staff are being furloughed and playing staff are still being paid by the club in full. Like it's a, it's a bit of a mind screw, isn't it? Yeah, I think to be honest, I don't know if football's the only business that kind of follows this this same mantra. You, you see it with a lot of companies. You know, the pe- people on the floor doing the hard work are the ones that ultimately get sacrificed, whilst the the rich um, kids at the top will, will still get their their massive bonuses. So it's just kind of part and parcel of business. These playing staff, they're they're not they're, they're not really employees. They're they're virtually like commodities that they want to hang on to and and you know hold on to it for as as long as possible so it's almost like property of the company part of what it makes its selling value and you know it's, it's partly true as well obviously with the shirt sales and things like that and the ticket sales are because people go to to view a certain player play you know if Ronaldo wants an extra 20 grand a, a week you give it to him because you know he has that intrinsic value to him but not not necessarily Will Grigg but that's just an example you do wonder as well, though, if Charlie Methven is actually embodying Stuart Donald's old-fashioned approach to managing a club and trying to connect the work that's done off-pitch with, with what is done on, on the pitch. That, you know, the club is one greater entity and everybody's work impacts on the other person's work and trying to get at the idea that the, even the fans pay for the club. And obviously, we go back to the the Grig shell out and etc. That sort of excess completely undermines what Charlie Methven is doing. But he's he is consistent, and he is 
putting that effort in. And so I like that because I guess we were, he was trying to draw that direct comparison with making, I think it was about an extra million pounds, wasn't it, of filling, yeah. out, filling Sunderland for the Boxing Day, Stevens Day game. And likewise, he's pretty much doing the same thing with this Wembley game. Yeah, I think if he had deviated from his usual course, we'd all be calling him a bit of a snake at the moment. So, in case of damned if you do, damned if you don't with with Charlie. But yeah, well, I think it's I think it's fair enough. But I'm sure some people watch that and were just like, oh, how greedy can you be? But yeah, okay. Um, so from here. Um, there's further office drama that Stuart's selling, not literally, uh, the club to some anonymous investors. There's a man with uh, his sweater tied around his neck, so we know he's rich, probably going off to a golf course afterwards. And he explains he's got options and needs the funding. His issue isn't giving away a state, but losing control. I don't have a problem with a big state, but losing control is not something I really want to do. I do want to own enough of the football club to feel that I can influence it and to feel that my voice can be heard. That sounds pretty stark, doesn't it? Like, he does seem like he really needs the money. It's, there's there's got to be a reason they've put this scene in, as well as the scene right at the top of the episode. Like, anything more to add on the discussion here? Like, investors are quite common, aren't they? What we so. said already on the pod about the, the naivety of Stuart, and we, we talked about it in the last episode as well, how he, he's not like, he isn't quite like Stan Cronker, you know, he doesn't. He doesn't have an infinite pool of money or resource or, you know, a massive, massive farm across half of the United States. He, um, he you know, he, he, broke, he really broke the bank on that Will Grigg purchase. And as, as we said as well, you know, he didn't join with the consortium. He joined on his own in the end. And he's now, in, he's now found himself in a situation where if they don't get promoted, then he, he's in some serious trouble because of, the, because of the wage bill, because it's the biggest deal in League One, because, you know, players on 50 grand a week still, you know, Catamol, McGeevy, all these, Oviedo, all these players from the Premier League with ridiculous wages from the previous era still, you know, earning, earning a ton. And he, he's got to do something about this. So it's, it's just reflecting, again, some of the naivety perhaps that, um, you know, going into this in the first place that he's, he's um, displayed. He's done an inverse Josh Maja with himself in that with Josh Maja, you knew he was worth something, but he couldn't get them to extend the contract so that he could keep him at the club. And, you know, other clubs were able to come in and take him for relatively cheap in the end at just the wrong time because they, they knew they could. And in this sense, I think he's going to end up selling himself short and ending up having to give away more control than he would have for money because they know any investor knows that he's desperate for it. And it's it's pretty obvious again with a quick Google, as we were saying, that you know that just that this whole entire thing was just beyond his ability to fund by himself, and he would be indebted trying to do so. The more the more you kind of look at it, the more you kind of think, well, wasn't there a plan in place? Like, surely you're quite late on in the season now. Like, it seems like everything was basically they needed to be running away with it right now for Stuart to be comfortable. Anything other than absolutely destroying that league would put them in serious financial jeopardy and that seems to be what's on the brink of happening it's it's like another thing with the inverse Maja that Maja just performed way above expectations maybe they performed a bit below expectations and it kind of screwed them in a way as well yeah it, it is very perplexing it's not the only perplexing decision we've seen but maybe it was kind of a you know sixth grig bid-esque type thing that led him to going in and buying the club when the, when the consortium <laughs> wasn't there with him anymore yeah, just uh, sunk cost fallacy writ large. Just had to go ahead with it. But yeah, it does seem crazy that we're in five episodes out of six and only now is it coming up they need investors to, in order to 
compete into the next season. Like, it seems absolutely scandalous, really. But I guess that's the fit and proper person test for you, huh? Well, from here, the rest of the episode really is given to the build-up to the, to the Checker Trade Cup final. Uh, Jack Ross says there's proper determination, extra zip in training. Ten games remain at this point, we're told. There's nine league games and one final to go. Jack walks right into another bout of foreshadowing Schadenfreude. There's no point in us working as hard as we have done to get to the final, not to win it. Um, it would be wasteful and it would hurt and it would be sore. And there's lots of importance been heaped winning the day. And we really start to see it with the fans. So we see Ian, uh, who we met earlier, uh, getting Sutherland's slide eye tattooed in his arm. So he's got his club back. And Michelle says he seems to have fallen back in love with it. In the tea room, we see other fans reflecting on the excitement. We see Andrew getting his beard uh, sprayed white and red. Genuinely but... had to look away during these scenes. It was just too much. <laughs> too sa- too saturated. It was just too much. I had to look. I, I I don't need to look away watching horror films usually. I wouldn't be afraid <laughs> of blood, guts, and gore on any like Animal Planet or some sort of movie. No, that was too much. Oh, it really? was just no, too much. Yeah, the the tattoo especially. I was just like, oh, I just I cringed like through the chair. Yeah, I know, especially something so like dies or what that represents to me. Um, find detail that Andrew was in a fake Sunderland shirt. I don't know if anyone, anyone else spotted that. Um, it, it was, a, it, was a, it wasn't the real badge. <laughs> you, you, you see that badge pop up quite a lot throughout was, the series as well. Absolutely hilarious. Um, our taxi driver Pete getting his Wembley haircut, and we saw this kind of. All right, maybe I sound like I'm being a little bit snobbish, but this kind of really bizarre to me, to my eye, scene of Ian and Michelle putting up a Luco Nine T-shirt opposite their T-shirts to uh, opposite the shirts. Of, uh, I thought it was a bit Kershoff, yeah. Yeah, Tom. Jan Kershoff and, and McGeady, yeah. I did, I did find that quite odd. It was good to, good to see our own 09 um, yeah, up there with yeah, some love, yeah, of Kershoff but... and you know, Kershoff was... three games for Sutherland. But, yeah. well, that was an Allardyce yeah. signing, wasn't it? It kept them up. Is this, a, is this a good point to reveal your Ben Davies shrine, Nick? Who would Tom's shrine even be? Shrine, I'm like, afraid it doesn't actually exist. <laughs> Tom with a Bentner shrine or something. I think it would probably be like a, a Burkamp sort of portrait. <laughs> so, so are you clarifying you didn't have a, a Bentner shrine? Yeah, just so you know, I don't have a Bentner. I've, I've got Bentner bog. No, I haven't, I haven't got anything like that actually. Yeah. Oh my word! <laughs> what was the name of that uh, Swedish guy who came with a broken back? Uh, Kim Kallström. Yes, yeah. There's a champion, <laughs> championship manager hero, Kim Kallstrom, actually. A Kallstrom carpet? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. There's a big picture of a broken back on it. <laughs> but we, do, we digress. Uh, let's get back on track. Uh, Jack Ross says, there's, as we spoke about earlier, a chance against Wembley. doesn't come around all too often. It looks like the fans are leaving in droves anyway. There's this max exodus to the capital to watch their team as um, the momentum seems to build behind their football club. Once the city gets behind the football club, and we start going the right direction, but can be unstoppable force. So this is a good time, I think, to talk about the fans and something to that dive. What role do we think they play in the narrative of the show? I don't know what Anthony actually really thinks, if, if that was his true views, but I actually think that they're, they're really important to the show. And, you know, they're, they're, they're the beating heart of Sunderland. Half the show is it's not just about the football, it's about the city and the people that live in the city and what the football club means to them. And, you know, just how important Sunderland is for the people that live in that city is, is basically like their whole reason for existence is to see their club do well um, because you know that it's as, as we all know it's it's not prosperous area there's not social mobility so what people live for is is for Sunderland Football Club and 
and their results on the pitch. And, you know, you see it within this TV show that these people, these fans are dedicated to the club. You know, they, they follow the story. We, you know, you get their views on the owners, what's going on, what's happening. And, and, and you see like, for instance, the positivity, the positivity that's brimming through this, this scene. It's very nice to see because it, I mean, we know the history of Sunderland the last seven years or so have been absolutely miserable not winning at home for a whole year. And, and this is, seems to be, you know, feels, feels like a little bit of a sea change. We know things change again after this, but it does feel a little bit of a sea change for the club and the fans and, and um, you know, for, for a period of real darkness to see the sort of positivity. And I know it might seem a bit superfluous with the, the shirts going up and the tattoos and the, and the beard dye, but, you know, this, people are enjoying themselves and it's, it's nice to see to a little bit. Maybe. I mean, I think that they, to dust off my English search to the grief just a second, provides what's known as the rustic chorus, so the voice of people showing how the decisions made and performance of the club affects the people, in inverted commas. Like, in like, lots of literature, stuff happens amongst the gentry, whereas the workers get on with their day-to-day sort of simple lives. And I think that that's kind of, in some ways, how this is shown. Really, what they do is provide an emotional perspective. Um, the person on leading the club and the playing side mostly come and go, but these are the people who will have to live with the decisions made, their performances, and still have that emotive sort of connection with the club. Whereas for everybody else, it's kind of transactional. Like you do occasionally get a player who comes to embody what the club is, um, but mostly players are doing their job to be there. They're not there because they love the club most of the time. They're there because it's a job. But these people do genuinely love the club. And as Nick said, I think the fact that they are so heavily involved here definitely does add that sort of layer of emotional resonance, which helps draw you in as a, as a viewer. But I often feel it's a bit too wholesome and saturating too, uh, given my cynical mind. But I think it's very good they're being optimistic, authentic and saying their truth, especially in this moment. And against the backdrop of, as what Nick said, was, has been a very tough time. I have very little to add. I certainly don't have uh, an English literature noun to add to proceedings or anything like it. But like what I would say is that it definitely gets across the idea that, look, this is a city where the club is the shrine at the centre of it and that these people and their upbringing, their lives, the fact that Sunderland is the beating heart of the community and the identity of the club is wrapped up in that. Some clubs, you know, they're trying to fabricate their own identity. Some clubs actually have an identity and these fans allow the the director to get across to us that this club actually has an identity and it is as far as i understand it a true identity that we're shown here and like my issue probably with um <laughs> the, the bits that i had to turn away from is probably just a greater reflection on uh, me and my cynicism and my interests and i just you know that sort of uh, overt uh, tattoo type thing just isn't my style i have a bit of a beard at the moment i certainly <laughs> won't be painting it red and white or green for ireland or anything like it no, that's definitely true. And I think back in my, one of my old jobs, I used to work for UEFA, one of my clients. And that was really interesting to see the difference between clubs and brands. Like some clubs are still clubs. Like Sunderland is a club. Or maybe if Sunderland's like diet, it's now a bit of a brand, but it is a proper club in that it's got that geographical proximity. The people who are from Sunderland tend to be Sunderland fans. Whereas if you've got a club like Man United, Stag, you're a Man United fan, but you have no real connection with Manchester, I assume. Um, and yeah, you've yeah. got kind of clubs like AC Milan, the number two. Uh, they were a while ago number two most supported club in china why because they had a very very successful social media around there in the 1990s um you've got all these sorts of clubs who are now super clubs they're just brands they're like baubles you see that they're on the the same level as louis vuitton or something like that 
and it's very nice to be reminded that football can have this sort of impact on people. You have it a little bit in the Premier League, but a lot of the time what we see are super clubs doing super club things. And it's good to be reminded of what the grassroots can be like. I'll get off my pedestal now. but Especially yeah. when we're being reminded about how uh, football clubs can be used as a a cloak to you know conceal other things that's something we've touched across on the news round already in the last few weeks with Newcastle for example and other clubs who are doing similar things or owners who have similar uh, washing that they wouldn't like to be out and they're trying to hide with a club and look that's a problem and so like look at the end of the day you can have a brand and still have a club as well you look at something like I don't know Boca Juniors or even the likes of Real Madrid like look like the, the club is soulless but there's still very much a club there behind as well as you know, this super brand. Compare even Manchester United and Man City, and you'll get the idea between a, a, a club that does have a, a huge brand that is probably much more important to its ownership than the club itself. But there's still a club there when you compare it to City, which is effectively just a brand. Yep, I know what you mean. I mean, there's got to be some sort of culture, uh, albeit at Real Madrid, it's booing everybody, but there we go. It's the pursuit of excellence. Yeah, it is. We can drop into the Magellanos if you want, but it's, 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 a re- it's really interesting, their subculture, isn't it? That they go there expecting to be entertained. It's not going there backing your team. It's going there with the expectation to be entertained, like going to the theatre. Anyway, that's a, a side point, which we can cover at another, another time. So, uh, we see the Sunderland team arrive in King's Cross to a raucous reception, uh, get selfies, having, uh, fans are having beers outside the arches on York Way. Uh, there's also portly blokes, beer in hand, serenading them with witty Sunderland, 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 chanting. Well, I wonder how they came up with that. Uh, there's a scene of Covent Garden overwhelmed with wearsiders, bestowing their melodic charms upon that famous old place. Looks like everyone's having fun, but the stakes feel high. The tax driver peak, it's just crackers, man. Um, there's lots of inebriated northerners shouting Sunderland till I die into the evening air. Beautiful. I cross the street. Uh, I kid, but it's a bit of foreshadowing, I think, for the North versus South divide, uh, which we'll talk about in the final episode, I think. But I mean, this episode, the final third of it is devoted to the final itself. And it's just battle scenes, basically, isn't it? But as we kick off the game, 85,000 people and we're treated to the final. First half belongs to Sunderland. They go 1-0 up for a deflected McGeady free kick. And you see Charlie making asinine football observations all the way through the game, which is really, really annoying. That's <laughs> by far the biggest battle that's going on throughout this thing. And it is Charlie's partner or wife, whatever she is, <laughs> yeah. trying to just hold herself back from just eating his head off. And eventually she snaps. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, just a free kick. It's a great spot. <laughs> for a right footer. <laughs> It's like specifically for Dude, the right Oh, there's an overload. There's an overload. Dude, you clearly just Google what that word is, knowing you're going to be on. You're going to be on uh, Sun Side. Absolutely. Oh, it's so frustrating. Um, like I would fully admit though that I definitely do a bit of what Charlie Methvin does if I'm watching a game in like the park <laughs> with somebody who doesn't know. You know, I'm totally just like, oh god, look, he's down there on the left. There's space, space. So, yeah, I, I, I know. I think. I think. I, I agree. I agree. I agree. You I know, think... someone, someone else could like just to give a bit of element of fairness. Like someone could definitely be like, oh, Anthony, who doesn't know that his alter ego stag exists on the internet and is better known than his actual name you know like in real life but you know it's like you could just say that i didn't know a thing either but at the end of the day poor old charlie's living in football now i I just think i just uh, the way okay it's the way the way it comes across when he's saying it it just seems so asinine yeah okay there is that element of like yeah i just want to be fair to all good old charlie my my pal charlie you know yeah (laughs) your man um (laughs) 
BNA. So it's you know it's, it's one. It's, I think it's one nil at halftime. Sunderland, but in the second half things roll on. Portsmouth roar back into action. It's two one. Uh, it's two one. I think uh, they score the second goal in extra time. In the first half, uh, McGeady bundles in his second of the day in just before the final whistle. Goes to penalties and long story short, Casamol uh, misses the second penalty, uh, which means they lose five four. Pete Farrer from the minute he saw that Lee Catterall was taking a penalty. Shouldn't have taken it. Shouldn't have taken it. Pete saw it. But it's like when the Gareth Southgate yeah. walked up in nineteen ninety six, isn't it? I wasn't born. <laughs> <laughs> or um or Batty in eight in ninety eight. Oh god, Batty Batty was never scoring, was he? <laughs> I couldn't walk. No. <laughs> it's the worst penalty ever. <laughs> um but I, I think what what's really cool here is how the program makers have made this content into commoditized schadenfreude so effectively because I really felt for them. Like I really felt for the fans and I was, I felt myself actively the first time, at least second time I was watching it for this. I was a bit more kind of objective, but when I was watching it as a viewer, effectively, I definitely found myself rooting for Sunderland so much. Like, and I really felt for them when, when that, when they didn't win. Yeah, I, I would totally say that I, I definitely felt the same way. You're kind of, even just for the Aidan McGeady performance alone, I think you kind of wanted them to get something from it. And in spite of all the flaws and the madness of that we've seen throughout this series, I think at the end of the day, you kind of felt like it was a club that was just in the wrong place and deserved, not deserved to go up because of necessarily the management overall, but just as a, a, a an entity. It's just not in the right place and you, you'd wish better for them. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was very sad for them. I think, um, well, I, I knew the result anyway, but I was kind of just watching it almost with a, with a sense of dread because, you know, you're seeing the positivity, you're seeing the happiness, you know, just like classic TV drama where you know that then someone's about to be murdered or something. You're just like, oh, no, I can't watch. <laughs> just as you see everything sort of fall apart in that second half and in, in extra time and, um, and penalties, obviously, where, yeah, it just... Uh, just ends and you know it's just back to misery again isn't it for, for Sunderland and their fans so tense it really was and I think that maybe this underlines what we were saying about the importance of the fans because they're the ones who are emotionally impacted by the performance of the team vindication for Ian and Michelle as well putting up a Luke 9 shirt and not a Lee Cattermole shirt you know, he showed them but a great penalty down to the bottom left absolute lads fairy tale prince almost got his fairy tale ending um, and the episode does end though with this kind of uh, commentary from Charlie about how he and Stuart aren't happy with poor second halves uh, then persistently going one lot and defending the lead and as we noted a little bit on the last episode they're beginning to blame the manager aren't they ultimately as the board you appoint the manager and the manager manages the team so it's up to the manager to look deep inside himself and his coaching staff and ask some really tough questions so uh, i mean we've i don't think we've had the time to quite watch the game and um, but we have gone through what happened on the day uh, in terms of match reports and looking at people like what the Roker report, et cetera, have said. And a key question here, do we think there's one, one moment where Will Grigg comes off in the second half? Was he just too defensive in the game, Jack Ross? Yeah, by all accounts, it just seems like Sunderland needed some an extra oomph to be added to them to try and just take the game back towards Portsmouth to some extent. And they just... Instead, they took away their one chance. Like Greg was, by all accounts as well, isolated up top, struggling to get into the game. But surely, if you've spent as much as you have on Greg, you should try and feed him. And you know, make, you know, the big come at the day, come at the big player. But instead, they're just like, nah, I'll get rid of him. Let's just you know, try and hold on to this one nil and see what happens. 
I think, yeah, um, I, I kind of understand to an extent where Charlie's coming from just watching from the footage. I haven't watched the whole game, obviously, but it, at least the way they portrayed the footage in the first half, you know, it was 1-0 up, they were on the attack, it was all positivity, everyone was saying that, Sun, you know, everyone was saying Sunderland were dominant, they were dominating the game and the Portsmouth manager would have to do a, a massive team talk and make some major changes to get back into the game is what was implied. And then in the second half, it's all, the entire thing is just negative comments, negativity, chances for Portsmouth hitting the post, you know, just wide, lots of opportunities and, and the fans are saying, oh, um, even before Will Grigg even came off, they were like, oh, he's isolated. He's, there's a massive gap between the midfield and the forward, um, you know, so he's not going to be getting any balls anyway. And, um, you know, it's 10 men behind the ball, essentially, once, once Grigg had come off. And I think it was a little bit negative, perhaps, from Jack Ross. You know, as I said before, this sort of attack um, can be the best kind of defence sometimes, just to go on the attack and continue to attack. If you're attacking, then you, you know, your opponent's not attacking. If you just sit behind, then your opponent's going to continue to attack constantly. And, uh, I know they were, you know, just trying to preserve the the one nil lead, and with the benefit of hindsight, you could argue that, you know, the manager's obviously going to get the blame for his tactics. But if it paid off, then it would have paid off. If he continued to attack and they scored, then he'd have been criticised as well. The one thing as well, though, is that we're fully aware, and we were made aware in the last episode. And if you just have a look at Sunderland's record in the league that season, they had a habit of drawing games. They drew a ridiculous percentage of their games that season. And whether that be by going 1-0 down and coming back or going 1-0 up and being clawed back, at the end of the day, this is a team that haven't been able to put games to bed enough. And when you've had that happen time and time again up until this point in the season, to try and hold out when it hasn't necessarily been a successful tactic with the personnel all season, you, you do wonder at that point, like what was Jack Ross thinking there? It definitely seems from what I looked at from Jack Ross that there was this kind of uh, tendency to not close out games. And what Madger was doing was giving them that kind of magical second goal or you know, making games safe and helping them convert those chances. Um, we went for a 4-5-1 uh, this game. Um, started with Wyke on the bench and uh, suggestions and a lot of the comments that I've read that Wyke should have come on a bit earlier as it stood. He came on at the start of the sec- first half of extra time when Grigg had already gone. And it looked like you know, Grigg is one of, these, one of these players who plays off the shoulder a little bit uh, compared to Madger, who is more of a kind of a poacher sort of character. Uh, but yeah, it, it didn't look that great for Sunderland uh, looking at the data. The first half, yeah, they must dominate it. But overall, in terms of the possession, in terms of the shots and the shots on target, uh, Portsmouth were by far the best side. So it maybe just goes to show uh, that the way it was shot and the way it actually came off were perhaps different things. Maybe Portsmouth were, especially in the second half, guilty of not finishing off the game quickly enough. Some of the decisions that Jack Ross made throughout the game, so no doubt in Charlie's mind, Ross is slightly culpable for the for the loss and his strategy and the way they approached the second half lost him the game ultimately, so he will be the target. And I'm sure Charlie wouldn't have been the only one to have blamed Jack Ross, unfortunately, in this scenario. I'm sure a lot of the fans, if we heard their views, might have criticised further in terms of what the manager did in that, in that game. So, you know, is, is he fair? When is it fair to ever criticise any, any manager, really, when it's, it's the players that are often at fault and just the manager picks the 11, doesn't he? He's going to take the blame, unfortunately, I think, yeah. Look, uh, that Portsmouth team were a decent scoring team. They finished League One as the second highest scorers in the league that season in spite of finishing fourth. They'd conceded 51 times, which is more than 
almost any other team in the top six. Only Doncaster Rovers are in the top six have conceded um, more than them. So like you are talking about a team that's probably better in attack than in defence and maybe maybe Jack Ross was trying to negate Portsmouth's strengths rather than playing at their weaknesses and that's that's management isn't it you you do pay for your decisions with your job or you're you're judged based on your performances and based on how results go and if the result didn't go his way so is Charlie being fair here like yeah but maybe Charlie needs to look in the mirror more at other times and that's just blame game that's football and maybe he was just asked the question what do you think of the game Charlie and he's just gone oh well the manager needs to do this more and he's just saying exactly what he said throughout the game yeah I mean on the, on the pitch I think the performance does fall on the manager simply put they didn't win the game and the emotions were running high and I think that it's natural to just you know, want someone to blame in that moment God, who'd be a manager, eh? And the show ends uh, for this week as a dejected uh, Ian and Michelle walk out of Wembley. Back to their jersey. <laughs> yep. Did you like this episode? Yeah, it was good. Like, I much preferred the uh, the Will Grigg boardroom office episode. That might sound bizarre, actually, when you're saying it's like, wow, the one with loads of football was the one I didn't like as much. But it, it, at the end of the day, I think they were they were trying to tell a story using a game, and um, I'm more intrigued by the uh, office politics and the money side of the game sometimes than what I can learn from watching a football game and just seeing passion and stuff. If you were someone who was into, I don't know human emotions and cultural significance of football I think this was probably the one to watch but I'm just probably more into the other side of the game yeah exactly I think I'm the same here I enjoyed the episode but it's probably not as enthralling ultimately compared to some of the boardroom politics that we saw in um, episodes three and four which um, you know were really really um, good episodes of television this this was a bit more kind of always oh, it's the it's the adventure of the check trades trophy over the course of 45 minutes and, and not a lot else um to it to be honest but you, you kind of knew though if you know if this was a book and it was a narrator it's like you know this was like frodo on his way to mordor but this was just like the bit where he stopped to go fishing you know and you're just like okay right he catches a fish or he doesn't catch the fish like you know we're still waiting for the trip to Mordor here uh, which is the end of the league season and that's the really important thing and it's just kind of it's just a bit of it is kind of the more colourful thing that just kind of takes us along the journey and passes I know there isn't a Lord of the Rings scene where he goes fishing guys by the way I think you all looked at me perplexed for that part but just you kind of get the idea that it's just a little yeah, bit of a segue it's just like time out yeah 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 and um, no I mean Okay, I'll extend the metaphor. It really felt like, to me, the third uh, Hobbit film, Five Armies, which is literally just a little bit of dialogue, which is completely irrelevant, and then a big battle scene for the majority of the film, which, again, is completely irrelevant, should not have been made. And I'm not saying this episode shouldn't have been made, of course, but it definitely felt like they just kind of had a lot of footage and they happened to get to the final. So this was quite like a nice episode to kind of string into a story. There is also the aspect of they kind of played on the idea as well. And maybe this is being true to things in a lot of ways that the the story was positive for quite a lot of Sunderland season. You know, positive in the sense that they were going in the right direction, not as quickly or as emphatically as they'd hoped. But hope was brewing nevertheless and just the fact that this particular fishing adventure if we're going to go back to my bad metaphor ended without a fish doesn't necessarily mean that the whole thing is negative you know they still got to Wembley they still had their day they still got to the final and so maybe just they're showing that positive sign of that 
that was maybe maybe just building it building it up uh, to either a story of redemption or a story of disaster i'm not sure which way it's going to go um, but, you know, I, I think for me it was there was a lot of the use of football to pass time and a lot of attaching obviously meaning to that and i think this one really showcased the impact of cup football and obviously the the impact of the team doing well um on the fan base and that was genuinely the key undercurrent to this one which is why we've spoken about it of course in the course of this podcast anyone want to do just to say <laughs> all right fine <laughs> so you know who we are we are who got the assists and we are on twitter as well you can find us at wgta underscore fpl for tom at wgta underscore nick for myself Stag can be found at FPL Stag, and we're also on Instagram, WGTA.FPL. We shall indeed be back next week for Series 2, Episode 6, which is titled Football is Life, uh, which will be the last of the watch-alongs, but not the last of this series of looking at Sunderland Until I Die. Stay safe, everybody. We hope to assist you watch Sunderland Until I Die. Can't wait until that. So I hope to assist you with FPL, uh, but it is what it is. Um, speak to you very, very soon. Goodbye. Salon. Oh, it's a goal. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? Sports Social Podcast Network.